Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, we ask that you would give us faith in your word, that you would encourage us through the things that you have said and done to believe in you, to remember you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. As we contemplate the resurrection this morning, our passage recounts a prediction, a prophecy, if you will, that Jesus makes right after cleansing the temple. We saw last week on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the first place he went was to the temple, which he then cleansed by driving out the money changers, driving out those who were turning the temple into a den of thieves. He was challenged by what authority he could do things like this. And you can understand why people might challenge it. If someone were to come in now and start throwing us all out and knocking things over and and flailing us with whips, you probably would expect the elders to say, hold on now, why are you doing this? Who gives you the right to do this? And so that's what they do. They go to Jesus and say, basically, who gives you the right? You need to give us some kind of a sign. Show us that you have the authority to do these things. And Jesus speaks these words, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So as we think about the resurrection this morning, we're going to be speaking about the temple. We've been talking about the temple for weeks now, so it could come as no surprise. Remember in Zechariah's day, the temple was essential to the life of the people. Rebuilding the temple is what they lived for. All their hopes depended on the fate of the temple. And when God promised that the temple would be completed, that it would be rebuilt, that gave them hope. It gave them hope to live for the future. Now, in Jesus' day, the temple that they're talking about here is a different temple. It's a much grander temple. The temple of Zerubbabel was one thing. This is Herod's temple. And it's magnificent. Zerubbabel's temple, the temple in Zechariah's day, it took 20 years to build. But of course, 10 of those years were spent not doing anything. And that's part of the reason why it took so long. But Herod's temple had taken 46 years to build. And to be honest, it was still in progress at this time. It was not yet finished. So you can imagine what an elaborate and magnificent structure it was. And a pride to the people that such a building existed, a dwelling place for their God. This is the temple that Jesus heads to when he enters into the city, acknowledged as Israel's king. 
goes to this temple, goes straight there because it is the center of God's presence, not only in the city, but in the world, in creation. The temple was important to those people. Just as in Zechariah's day, the temple meant everything to them. In Jesus' day, the temple was the center of their lives. And for that reason, what Jesus said about the temple was one of those things that really stuck in people's minds. They didn't forget these words that he spoke. They talked about this. And as they talked about it, Jesus' words changed a little bit. We learn this. We see the accusations that are brought against Jesus when he's arrested and put on trial. His accusers come and they repeat these words more or less as a charge against him. You'll find in Matthew 26, the accusers say, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Not exactly what he said, but it's closer than what the witnesses in Mark 14 say. They say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. It didn't stop there when Jesus was crucified, when he was hanging on the cross, as people were taunting him, they threw these words back in his face. They reminded him in his suffering and death that he had boasted about building the temple. Matthew 27, they yell, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And in Mark's gospel in chapter 15, they say, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, obviously, when you go back and look at what Jesus said, you realize his accusers twisted his words somewhat. But honestly, even his disciples didn't really follow what it was he was saying. They were confused as well about the meaning of these words. They didn't know what he meant until later. But even though they didn't understand, even though the people who heard these words were confused by them, they knew that they mattered. They knew that what Jesus said mattered because the temple mattered, and he was saying something that sounded a little strange and threatening, ominous about the temple. So Jesus, when he spoke of his death, he spoke about the temple. When he spoke of his resurrection, he spoke about the temple. But when he was talking about the temple, what was he really saying? John clarifies for us the, the meaning of Jesus' words. He was speaking of the temple of his body, John says. In other words, he didn't mean the building, he meant his body. What he was saying was referring to himself, not to the building that happened to be standing nearby. Which is all well and good, but that's actually a really confusing way to talk about things. You're standing in front of a, a building called the temple, and you start talking about destroying the temple and building it up, but you don't really mean the temple that's like looming behind you, really obviously. You're just talking about your body. That's a weird way to describe your own body. Why would you talk about your body this way? Jesus just trying to confuse people? No. The only reason why you would speak this way is if there was some kind of inextricable link between the building and the body. If there was some kind of real connection between the body of Christ and the temple of the living God. To understand what that connection is, we have to ask ourselves, what was the temple really? What was the temple all about? Well, the temple and the tabernacle before it 
and the garden before it were all meeting places. These were all places that existed so that human beings and God could commune together. So creature and creator could commune as one. The first meeting place, the garden, that was a meeting place like no other. And in that place, there was a communion between God and human beings that has never existed since then, that we can only kind of imagine or understand through analogy because we've never experienced anything like it. Because in the garden, before the fall, before sin, human beings knew God. They knew God. And they knew that they were known by God. Without a doubt. And that's something we've never experienced the way that they did. Nothing like it has existed since then. But the tabernacle, that tent of meeting, and later the temple, that that building of meeting, they were like hints at what the garden was. They hinted at the kind of communion that had once existed between us and the God who made us. They hinted at it, and they also promised that one day it would be restored. You might think of the temple and the tabernacle before it as beachheads, like little spear points that were promising more to come. The relationship is coming. The restoration is coming. That tent, and then later that building, they were physical promises that the communication lines between God and man, that the communion lines between God and man one day would be fully restored. In order to understand why a building like that, a meeting place like that would mean so much, you have to reflect a little bit on what was lost when the garden was lost. What did we lose in the garden? What was lost as a consequence of sin? When the Confession of Faith talks about that time in the garden, it refers to that as as humanity's state of innocence. So it seems like the answer would be obvious. Well, what was lost because of sin was innocence. Sure. But innocence is something we have a difficult time defining exactly or understanding. Because when we talk about innocence, we tend to talk about innocence as an absence. It's a bit of a mystery. We define it by what it's not. People who are innocent are not guilty. People who are innocent are not guilty, or people who are innocent are not yet corrupted. We understand what innocence is primarily through its opposite. We depict innocence when we try to understand it. We depict it as a kind of simplicity. People who are innocent are kind of simple. They're a little bit naive. We associate innocence with children. Children haven't yet lost their innocence, which means they do not yet have knowledge of the world. And so for us, innocence suggests a lack of something. Innocence is not having something that later you will possess. In art, it's very difficult to depict innocence. It's much easier to depict evil. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky, when he wrote Crime and Punishment, depicting evil, murder? Yes, easy. But when he set himself the task of depicting innocence in his novel, The Idiot, he created a character, Prince Mishkin, who was a true innocent, a positively good and beautiful man, he called him. But if you read that book, you'll see that that he seems a little 
like too good for this world, a little unknowing, a little easy to deceive. That's what we think of as innocence. Innocence is just a kind of ignorance. It's important to think about what innocence is, though, because we need to be able to put our finger on what was lost when the garden was shut, what was lost when the tabernacle was folded up, what was lost when the temple was destroyed. And we need to understand it not just as an absence. We need to think about what it was that was lost. What is innocence, in other words, when we understand it positively? Innocence understood positively is wholeness. Wholeness. It isn't lacking in something. It's completion. It's possessing all that you were meant to have, including a relationship with your Creator. That is innocence. Losing our communion with God meant losing our wholeness. The loss of wholeness has left us with an ache, an absence, with a longing, so that to the extent that we know ourselves at all, what we know about ourselves is our brokenness and our incompleteness and our frustration with the way that we are and the way that the world is. So the temple is a beachhead. The temple is a promise, but it might be better to think of the temple as a different kind of building. Think of the temple as an embassy. An embassy from a far-off place where a marker is laid down that there will be relationships between us, where we will remain in communication despite the hostility that exists. The temple is an embassy where God establishes ties with a hostile world. But the problem is an embassy was never enough. An embassy was never enough. Just having a a building where God dwelled and and the thought that there was a, a, a possibility of future restoration, it wasn't enough to bridge the gap. All that could ever be is a stopgap. So instead of a building, God came himself. God came himself in the form of his son Jesus. He became one of us. He became human, fully human. And as a flesh and blood human, he fulfilled the law through his obedience. And he took on himself the curse of sin on the cross, his work of atonement. Simply put, we were separated and because we could not go to him, he came to us. And he did this to restore the relationship that was meant to be between the creator and his creatures. So Jesus spoke of the temple because he was the tabernacle. He was the temple. His human body was the dwelling place of God with man. The body of Christ is the temple of the living God. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, he's not talking about a demolition project. He's talking about death. Destroy this temple. And and when he says those words, it's not a hypothetical. He's not saying, well, if you destroy this temple, then I will build it back up. The, the verb tense suggests something more like, not exactly a challenge, but but like an assertion, like like try it and see what happens. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. I will build it up. What he's talking about is the invincibility of this temple, of this dwelling place. God took on flesh and blood and he sacrificed that flesh 
and that blood for our sake, he endured to death on the cross. That's what he was speaking of when he spoke of the destruction of this temple. But unlike every temple that had gone on before, when this temple was destroyed, the relation between God and man was not severed, but rather the distance was obliterated. Because this temple proved to be indestructible. Jesus says, in three days I will raise it up. What he's talking about here is life. Destroying the temple is death. Raising it up is life. Life from death which is what resurrection is. So that in Christ's resurrection, when he comes back to life, when he walks out of the tomb, the relation of his people to their creator is finally restored. That's why we remember Easter. We don't remember Easter because of the, the miracle of a man coming back from the dead. We remember Easter because we are in Christ will also rise. Because what happened on the day of resurrection was a promise to us that our temples would be rebuilt. That though we are destroyed by death, we will be restored to life in Jesus Christ. John says when he was raised, the disciples remembered this. They remembered these words, and it meant something to them. We've seen this already before. Last week on Palm Sunday, we saw the way that Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus entered Jerusalem, and that the Gospel authors actually quote Zechariah to show that this was the fulfillment. The prophet said this would happen. It happened. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. And here we see exactly the same kind of thing happening. Jesus acts. In hindsight, his disciples realize that that prophecy has been fulfilled. There is one big difference. In this case, the prophet who prophesied these words is also Jesus himself. Jesus speaks as a prophet and then fulfills what he has prophesied in his death and resurrection. And when he was raised, the disciples remembered. That's a good phrase to meditate on. If you want a phrase to think about today during Easter, that's a phrase to turn over in your mind. When he was raised, the disciples remembered. I don't often ask you to do weird things like this, but I'm going to ask you to do a weird thing and repeat it with me. I want you to say these words with me just to feel them on your lips. When he was raised, the disciples remembered. Let's do it one more time. When he was raised, the disciples remembered. Memory, as you recall, is is a covenant function. You might think of memory as the sixth sense that God gives us to perceive covenant. Because covenant is always spoken of in terms of memory. We saw last time, Exodus 2, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, and so he comes and delivers his people from captivity, from bondage in Egypt. And now you get the other side of it, right? In Exodus 2, we have God remembering. You see, like the divine side of covenant keeping. But here, it's the disciples who remember. You see, like the human side of covenant keeping, remembering his word, and it it affects us. It gives us hope. It gives us a sense of wholeness that is to come. After the crucifixion, wholeness is not what the disciples were feeling. Imagine after Jesus' death, they were, 
Well, disappointed would be an understatement because they'd had a sense that that relationship was restored. They had been closer to knowing God than they had ever been, than, than any human beings had ever been since the garden. Things seemed to be on the cusp of changing forever. And then the one who seemed to be the promised one was arrested and, and killed. And it seemed as if that relationship was gone, that the temple of his body had been destroyed, could never be rebuilt. The interesting thing is, it's not at that moment that they remembered. It's not when he died that they remembered. Instead, they, they, they feared. They lost their nerve. They thought maybe it wasn't true. Maybe it wasn't going to happen. They were dismayed. We're the same way. And I wish I could say for us that when we suffered, the disciples of grace remembered. When we were tested, when things didn't go the way they thought we thought they were going to go, uh, we remembered what he had said. But all too often, that's just not the way it is. It's when we suffer, we don't remember. Or when we suffer, we remember all that's wrong with ourselves and with the world. When our hopes are destroyed and our community is rocked, our dreams are shattered, when our temples are torn down, like the disciples were more likely to huddle in an upper room and just wish it was all over, wishing it would just end. The things we can remember, the things we cannot forget, are the brokenness and the ache, the incompleteness. Those are easy to get in touch with. But the promise, the word that Jesus spoke, that's hard to remember. It's hard for us to recollect his words. And that would be a real tragedy if what John had written was, and when the disciples remembered, he was raised. If he had said, when the disciples remembered, he was raised, we'd be reading one of the most hopeless statements in Scripture because our memory is so poor. But thank God it was the other way around. When he was raised, his disciples remembered. When he showed himself in his power, then they remembered the word that he had spoken and it encouraged them to see that Jesus had prophesied his death and resurrection. And now it had happened. They knew now that it was true. The temple is destroyed, but Jesus raises it up again. And the power of the resurrection is what reminds you of the love promises that Jesus has made for you. It's not up to you to remember. Jesus carries that memory. Jesus, in his power, reminds us. So the disciples remembered. And what do they do? They believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken which is what we should all do when we're caused to remember the promises that Jesus has made and fulfilled. It was only after the resurrection that they could put the pieces together. It was only in hindsight that they could do this thing that they do in the Gospels where Jesus says something or does something and they follow up immediately, oh, this was to fulfill the prophecy of what had been said. That's not what they were doing at the moment. That was much later when they'd had time to put all the pieces together, when they'd been guided by the Holy Spirit into understanding. Now they realized that the destruction of the temple that he had spoken of was the destruction of his body and that raising it up three days later, that was all part of God's divine plan. There had been no reason for them to lose their nerve or or to feel dismayed. This was all what was intended to happen. 
Once they realized that, then they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They understood something that can be difficult for us. They understood there's no following Jesus without faithfulness to Scripture, to Jesus' word. Those things go together. The temple of his body had been raised, and the body of Christ was his ecclesia, his church. There was no way to follow him or be united to him apart from the work that he was doing, the construction project of the temple that he was building. So that to believe in Jesus, but not to believe in Scripture, it didn't make any sense. The two things went together because Jesus was the fulfillment of Scripture. And so to follow him is to follow, put your confidence in every word that God had spoken. Believe some of it, but not all of it. That would be like believing in some of the resurrection, but not all of it. It would make no sense. So believe. And by the power of the resurrection, cherish the word that Jesus has spoken. We talked about innocence in childhood. We associate children with innocence. And there is a positive sense in which that's true, not just a negative one. It's not just about not yet being corrupted. Innocence isn't just the absence of knowledge. When we say, well, he doesn't know any better. He's a child, that sort of thing. There's a positive connection between children and innocence. If you understand what innocence is. We talked about innocence as wholeness. but I think there's another way to understand it. You might think of innocence as dependence without fear. Dependence without fear. Now, that's true of babies, but not always. Sometimes what babies manifest is dependence with fear, and and they manifest it loudly. But sometimes, in little cherubic moments, it seems as if an innocent newborn is showing dependence without fear. When you have an utterly helpless human being who depends on others who really are kind of unknown forces out around you in the world that you can barely perceive, but depends on them for everything, and trust completely that that dependence is not misplaced. And in that sense, we do get an insight into what innocence really is. Dependence without fear. You live in this world long enough, one thing you will know about yourself is your dependence. That you are not complete in yourself. You're not self-contained and self-supporting. That you have needs. You have huge needs. And desperately, you may try to get other people to meet those needs and discover it is impossible. But imagine having that dependence and no fear. No anxiety that your needs won't be met. No fear of punishment or judgment or death. No fear of neglect. No fear of abandonment. No fear that you will be rejected. Utter dependence minus all of that. Innocence. Restored. Because we as human beings are utterly dependent on the God who made us. But knowing Him, we can be dependent on Him without fear. We have, in place of God, constructed so many different ways of finding this kind of dependence without fear. 
philosophies, belief systems, religions. We've done it all. We've built all sorts of temples, many different efforts to give ourselves that sense of innocence. Some of these things have been standing for 20 years or more, some for 46 or more, some for a thousand years or more, and yet all of them have failed, deliver on what they promise, and all of them, when they are destroyed, stay destroyed and are not built up. The gift of Christ's resurrection is that when our flesh is united to his, he builds us up and restores us to spiritual life and promises to raise us up on the last day. So all you need to do and all you need to keep in mind today as you reflect on the empty tomb and the new life that Christ promises us is this, just this, remember and believe. Remember the word that he spoke and believe in the word that he testified to. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.